0: From New York, this is Democracy Now.
1: There's about 1,500 lobbyists working for fossil fuel companies in the U.S. They're also working for some of the most progressive institutions in America, top universities, city governments, uh, museums, art galleries, green groups, uh, you name it. They're working for them. They have shared lobbyists.
0: The past three days have been the hottest on Earth, some say in 100,000 years. We'll speak with Guardian reporter Oliver Millman about double agents, fossil fuel lobbyists work for U.S. groups trying to fight climate crisis. And we'll talk to Bill McKibben, who says the sun that's cooking us could cool us too. Then to Guatemala, where election officials have rejected an attempt by the ruling business and political elite to overturn results from the first round of a presidential election, where the progressive anti-corruption candidate came in second and will now be in the race. A runoff. We will fight corruption,
2: because if we do not fight corruption, we will not achieve development and fight poverty.
0: We'll go to Guatemala City for the latest. And we'll speak with author Shadi Hamid about lessons for the next Arab Spring.
3: I argue in the piece that the Obama administration gave what amounted to a green light to General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to proceed with the military coup of July 3rd, 2013. And we are marking this week the 10th anniversary of that coup which in some ways marks the end of the Arab Spring as we know it.
0: All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The world's average surface temperature has soared to its highest level ever recorded, surpassing record levels of heat measured just a day earlier and the day before that. This week's string of record-shattering hottest days came as climate scientists warned last month was the hottest June ever recorded, with 2023 on track to become the hottest year in human history. Meanwhile, a new report in the journal Nature Communications warns changing weather patterns and extreme heat due to the climate crisis will exacerbate the global food crisis with lower crop yields anticipated in the near future. We'll have more on the climate crisis after headlines with Guardian reporter Oliver Millman and environmentalist Bill McKibben. In the United Kingdom, members of the Climate Action Group Extinction Rebellion shut down operations at the nation's largest coal mine Wednesday in a nonviolent civil disobedience action. The open pit mine in South Wales had been operating without a license. Elsewhere in the U.K., climate protesters disrupted play at the Wimbledon tennis tournament twice Wednesday, throwing orange confetti on the court and displaying T-shirts reading, Just Stop Oil. On Thursday, youth climate activists disrupted a speech by UK Labour Party leader Keir Starmer, accusing him of U-turning on his pledge to fund a transition away from fossil fuels.
1: Which side are
0: the Labour Party on? We, we are on the side of economic growth. Will you just let me please get on with this?
1: Thank you very much.
2: We We have have
1: already. Will you just let me finish this and I'll come and talk to you about it. Thank you very much. We we tried to speak to you about it, but you haven't replied to us, Look, We need a Green New Deal
0: right now. In Sweden, Gratitude and other youth climate activists have been charged with disobeying the police for peacefully blocking oil tankers at a port in Malmo last month. If convicted, the protesters face fines and up to six months in prison. The Biden administration is announcing it will ship cluster munitions to Ukraine as part of a Pentagon military aid package. The weapons are banned under the Convention on Cluster Munitions, an international treaty signed by more than 120 countries, though not by Russia, Ukraine or the United States. Investigators with Human Rights Watch have documented how cluster bombs used by Russia and Ukraine have repeatedly killed and injured civilians. The group warns unexploded bomblets left behind after cluster attacks will continue to pose a risk to civilians for years to come. Former senior U.S. national security officials have held secret talks with prominent Russians believed to be close to the Kremlin with the aim of laying the groundwork for negotiations to end the war in Ukraine. That's according to a report by NBC News citing half a dozen unnamed sources who were reportedly briefed on the discussions. The State Department said the Biden administration did not sanction the discussions and denied encouraging them. Israel's military fired artillery shells in a pair of villages in southern Lebanon Thursday after two missiles were fired toward Israel. There have been no reports of injuries in the exchange of fire, which came after Israel carried out one of its largest military operations in decades in the occupied West Bank city of Jenin. An Israeli court has acquitted a police officer over the shooting death of an unarmed autistic Palestinian man in occupied East Jerusalem. Iyad el Haq was a 32-year-old special needs student who attended and worked at a school near where he was shot dead in Jerusalem's old city. His killing in May 2020 drew comparisons to the police killing of George Floyd in the United States. On Thursday, a judge threw out the charges against the officer, whose name was not made public, calling the killing an honest mistake. Iyad's mother, Rana al Hayak, said family was surprised by the ruling. It's
2: injustice. I never saw injustice like this against a young man like my son. My son is buried in the cemetery and the killer is free and can travel around.
0: In the occupied West Bank, Israeli soldiers shot and killed at least two Palestinian men during an early morning raid today in the city of Nablus. At least three Palestinians were wounded in the assault. Separately, Israeli forces chased down and killed a Palestinian man after allegedly shot and killed a soldier protecting an illegal settlement near Nablus. At the United Nations, Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemned the massive two-day assault on Jenin by Israel earlier this week that killed at least 12 Palestinians and left more than 100 injured. Guterres called Israel's airstrikes during the raid inconsistent with the conduct of law enforcement operations and said that as the occupying power, Israel has responsibility to ensure that the civilian population is protected. Members of the U.N. Security Council, including the United States, have voiced support for deploying a multinational armed force to Haiti. Thursday's meeting follows a trip to Haiti by U.N. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres, who appealed for the international community to act now on Haiti.
2: The gangs are using kidnappings and sexual violence as weapons to terrorize entire communities. And I've heard appalling accounts of women and girls being gang-raped and of people being burned alive. We are not calling for a military or political mission of the United Nations. We are calling for a robust security force deployed by Member States to work hand-in-hand with the Asian National Police to defeat and dismantle the gangs and restore security across the country.
0: Haitian officials have requested the international force, but many in Haiti have opposed such a presence due to the disastrous history of U.N. and foreign interventions in Haiti. This all comes as Haiti today marks two years since the assassination of the Haitian president Moïse. A Haitian government watchdog released a letter yesterday slamming the lack of accountability and the stalled investigation of the killing, reinforcing a culture of impunity and corruption that's endangered all Haitians. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing for a four-day trip aimed at easing tensions between the U.S. and China. Yellen's meeting with the Chinese Premier Li Chang today. Yellen has criticized China's punitive actions and obstacles imposed on U.S. companies, including export controls on minerals and denying market access. The U.S. has imposed its own restrictions on China, focusing on its technology trade with the U.S. This is Secretary Yellen. The U.S. seeks healthy economic competition with China. But healthy economic competition, where both sides benefit, is only sustainable if that competition is fair. Climate change envoy John Kerry is set to visit China next week to resume talks on the climate crisis. China and the U.S. are the world's two biggest polluters, as well as the two largest investors in clean energy. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approved a drug to slow the cognitive decline of patients with mild dementia and other symptoms of early Alzheimer's disease. Approval of the intravenously administered drug, Lakembi, clears the way for Medicare and other health insurers to begin covering the extremely expensive treatment. The U.S. Geological Survey has found that nearly half the country's tap water likely contains at least one type of PFAS, also known as forever chemicals. PFAS are found in everyday products, such as personal care items, clothing, cleaning products, as well as food. They've been linked to a host of environmental and health problems, including certain kinds of cancer. Studies have shown nearly all Americans have detectable levels of PFAS in their blood. Over 6,000 conservative congregations of the United Methodist Church, about one-fifth the total number in the U.S., are preparing to leave the denomination over rifts about the role of the LGBTQIA people in the church. This comes amidst growing defiance of the church's policies prohibiting same-sex marriage and the ordination of LGBTQ people. More conservative members decided to launch the separate global Methodist church as states like Texas, Alabama, Kentucky and Ohio have seen the largest number of departures. Progressive congregations are expected to propose new church laws that allow same-sex marriage and the ordination of LGBTQ people in 2024. And Nepal's Supreme Court has issued a temporary order greenlighting the registration of same-sex marriages for the first time. LGBTQIA activists and couples across Nepal celebrated the decision. So far, we are very happy. If it becomes permanent, we will be even happier. We hope the permanent marriage regulation order will come as soon as possible. Things for us will be the same as for other men and women. That would be ideal. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The world's average surface temperature has soared to its highest level ever recorded, surpassing record levels of heat measured just one day earlier and the day before that. This week's string of record-shattering hottest days came as climate scientists warned last month was the hottest June ever recorded, with 2023 on track to become the hottest year in human history. Meanwhile, a new report in the journal Nature Communications warns changing weather patterns and extreme heat due to the climate crisis will exacerbate the global food crisis with lower crop yields anticipated in the near future. All of this has added new urgency for broad government action to address the climate crisis, but much of it has been thwarted by fossil fuel lobbyists, which we'll talk more about in a minute with The Guardian reporter Oliver Millman. But we begin with author and environmentalist Bill McKibben co-founder of 350.org and founder of the organization Third Act, whose new substack piece is headlined, No Human Has Ever Seen It Hotter, But the Sun That's Cooking Us Could Cool Us Too. His latest piece for The New Yorker is headlined, To Save the Planet, Should We Really Be Moving Slower? The Degrowth Movement Makes a Comeback. Bill, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. So the three hottest days in human history, some say in 100,000 years. Talk about what's happening and what needs to happen.
2: Well, uh, good morning, Amy. On on the one hand, there's nothing surprising about what's happening. It's what you and I have been talking about for literally decades now. Uh, Scientists have told us that this, as we pour carbon into the atmosphere, is the inevitable result. But we are seeing in 2023 that result come to the fore. We've seen truly startling things. Uh, It's now a reasonable chance that this will turn out to be the hottest year ever recorded. We've already had, as you say, the hottest days, the hottest week. We just had the hottest June. If you think it's bad here, really have some place in your heart for the people living in spots that are beyond hot and And unlikely to be air conditioned. Last night in parts of Algeria, cities in Algeria, the nighttime temperature uh, stayed above 103 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the hottest nighttime minimums ever recorded in Africa. So all around the world, we're seeing remarkable, remarkable things going on. And this is just as the El Nino uh, Pacific warming begins to kick into gear. The next 18 months are going to be a time of chaos and havoc as we go to temperatures that no human has ever seen, no society and no infrastructure has ever endured. We don't know precisely what will happen, but we can predict that it's going to be very, very hard. Um, and, And we can predict really, too, I think, that this is the last of these moments we're going to have when the world is summoned to action by events, and when there's still time to make at least some difference in the question of how hot it ultimately gets.
0: Can you talk about the degrowth movement, Bill? Well, as you know, there's, um,
2: uh, ever since the limits to growth in nineteen. uh 72 i guess there's been this critique that the world can't keep growing as it has been uh, that it'll eventually lead to uh ecological collapse that eventually seems to be coming true Um, but it is a very strange moment because on the other hand we understand that we need to increase very very quickly the amount of green energy and clean energy that we're producing and that requires growing at least one thing, solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, and so on. So my piece for The New Yorker was an attempt to square that circle, to say, are there ways that we could use this moment of extraordinary um, need for technological change to also produce some social change along the way, to build a different kind of world? Uh, we need to make the Technological change. And I think we also need to make some really serious social change as we do it towards a different kind of planet. The good news is that um, (laughs) we're beginning to see, beginning to see the payoff from some of that technological change. You know, Texas was the center of the heat wave in the U.S. so far this year. This heat dome settled over Texas and The numbers were astounding. There were cities setting new high temperature records 10 days in a row. But the grid did not collapse in Texas, and it did not collapse, one analyst after another is telling us, because there's a lot of solar power on that grid, four times more than there was in just four or five years ago. And that power, uh, not surprisingly, solar panels do well in heat waves, uh, that power has been enough to keep Texas uh, going. Of course, and as Oliver will make the case in a minute, the irony is that the Texas legislature is busy trying to help the fossil fuel industry and close down its renewable industry. But so far, it's renewables that are doing the job there. And believe me, utilities around the country are starting to watch because they understand that not only is this power cheap, uh, it's truly critical in the world that we're headed into now.
0: I mean we've been getting reports of hikers and um tourists who've died of the heat. A woman died in Arizona's Grand Canyon National Park after falling unconscious during an eight mile hike in over a hundred degree Fahrenheit weather. A man found dead in car with two flat tires, Death Valley National Park. I think the recorded temperature the day before was like a hundred twenty-six degrees. You had a, a teen and his dad in Texas. Um and But what about workers around the world as well? Well, I mean,
2: the the scale of what we're doing is astonishing. And you're very right to point that out. One of the things that the International Labor Organization has told us is that our ability to do work outdoors is already something like 10 percent degraded. Uh, uh, and that it'll be 30%, 40% by mid-century. That is the number of hours that people can be out working. There are lots of reports. China's just come through or is coming through an extraordinary heat wave, and Mexico has been through a heat wave that makes the one in Texas look small by comparison. Uh, people waking up at, at, you know, agricultural laborers waking up at 4 a.m. to get done what they can before it gets too hot to be outside. Uh, we're changing the world in deeply fundamental ways. We're not going to be able to stop. We can't stop global warming at this point. All we can do is try to stop it short of the place where it cuts civilizations off at the knees. And that will require nimbleness and speed that we've really never seen before. As you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has told us we need to cut emissions in half by 2030 to have any chance of meeting those targets that you reported on in Paris just eight years ago. By my watch, 2030 is six years and five months away. So the The need to move fast has never been clearer, I think.
0: Bill McKibben, does expanding renewable energy necessarily lead to a reduction in fossil fuels? Recent data show fossil fuels accounted for 82 percent of worldwide energy supply last year, even as record wind and solar came online. We're going to
2: find out in the next couple of years, and it it has to. Uh, uh, Renewable energy is right now at this takeoff point. It's suddenly becoming substantial. And it has to reduce fossil fuel use if it's to matter. That's why people were so upset when President Biden, who's done so much to sponsor renewable energy, also started approving things like the Willow Oil Project in Alaska or the MVP pipeline in Appalachia or this new string of LNG ports along the Gulf Coast. Um, the, The politicians are Getting better at saying yes to renewable energy, but they're no better at saying no to fossil fuel than they were before. And that's because of the extraordinary political power of that industry. They're clearly willing to break the planet. It's why we need more activists and more people out pushing. At Third Act, for instance, we're training up thousands of people to take on the public utility commissions in state after state after state. Uh, uh, These are incredibly important institutions, the public utility commissions, they set rates and help determine what facilities the, the utilities are allowed to build. But they're traditionally been protected by their incredible boringness. And they've been captured in almost every case by the utilities that they're supposed to regulate. So we need lots of people out pushing in places like that, as well as out in the streets or at Wimbledon or wherever it is. If you're a uh, i uh, if you're an older person like me, come join us at Third Act and see what we can do.
0: Uh, finally, Bill, uh, it's beautiful to hear the birds singing behind you in Middlebury, Vermont. Can you talk about the effect of this global heat wave, the hottest earth ever on the flora and fauna of the world?
2: <laughs> it comes at the worst possible time, Um We already know that because of lots of things, climate change, but also habitat destruction and pesticides and things, the number of animals on this planet is something like 70% lower than it was when I was born. And now we're being pushed and pushed and pushed. I think in the next few weeks, we're going to see devastating reports from around especially the oceans of the planet. Um, it, it, It looks like something like 40% 40% of the Earth's seas are now going through a, what the oceanographers call marine heat waves. That means widespread bleaching of coral. Uh, uh, you know, we forget sometimes we call the planet Earth, but we, if we were being honest, we'd probably call it ocean because <laughs> that's 70% of the planet's surface. And, and the damage there is extraordinary. Sea temperatures are not just a little bit higher than they've ever been before, They're, they're not off the charts. They're off the wall. The, the chart is tacked too. Um, so it's going to be a brutal period, not just for human beings. And that brutality is going to increase unless we get our act together now.
0: Bill McKibben, thanks so much for being with us. Co-founder of 350.org, founder of Third Act, will link to your Substack piece. No human has ever seen it hotter, but the sun that's cooking us could cool us too. And your New Yorker piece, "To Save the Planet, Should We Really Be Moving Slower?" The degrowth movement makes a comeback. Double agents. Fossil fuel lobbyists work for U.S. groups trying to fight climate crisis. That's the title of a damning new investigation by The Guardian that reveals how more than 1,500 lobbyists are working for fossil fuel companies. At the same time, they're representing hundreds of cities, universities, big tech companies, and even environmental groups that claim they're taking steps to address the climate crisis. The report is based on a new database by the group F-minus that was published online this week. For more, we're joined by The Guardian's environmental reporter, Oliver Millman, who is also author of the book The Insect Crisis. Oliver, welcome back to Democracy Now!, explain what you found and this contradiction of fossil fuel lobbyists representing the fossil fuel companies, but also, for example, environmental groups.
1: Hi there, Amy. Good to be with you. Yes, as you, as you mentioned, there are about 1,500 at least uh, lobbyists across the U.S. Uh, who do state-level lobbying for fossil fuel companies such as Exxon, Shell, BP, and so on. But they also work for some of the most progressive-minded institutions in the country. Um, you know, not only kind of cities such as Los Angeles, uh, Philadelphia, um, uh, even Baltimore uh, which is a city that is suing big oil because of its climate damages B- Baltimore shares a lobbyist with Exxon, which is one of the defendants in that case, quite extraordinarily um but also a, a range of other institutions um museums, art galleries, a new museum in new york the uh, los angeles uh, county art museum in in l a um big tech, the kind of big tech companies that have said they Will do so much to address the climate crisis apple google microsoft amazon all share lobbyists with with big oil um, apple shares a shares a lobbyist with the coke industries um, network that's uh, a group of companies that has done so much to delay and deny the science of climate change as well as stymie action to kind of cut emissions uh, and there's also more than more than 150 universities um, that share lobbyists with uh, big oil and gas, including um, uh, many universities that have divested themselves from fossil fuels, uh, which is an effort that, that bill uh, who, who was speaking before, has helped kind of spearhead there 's universities such as University of washington syracuse university, uh, uh, California State University that have all looked to divest themselves of fossil fuels and yet have lobbyists who work on other days of the week on pushing fossil fuel interests. So this is an extraordinary kind of overlap. So just
0: to be very clear, Oliver, you have a guy yeah. go lobbying at the state level, one day saying you got to um, deregulate for Exxon because I represent Exxon, he says, and the next day saying you got to shut down these fossil fuel companies because he represents uh, an environmental group. The yes, same guy. That,
1: yeah, that that's that's pretty much it. I mean, th- this data set doesn't show exactly what these lobbyists are lobbying on in terms of particular topics, but we know who their clients are and we know where the overlaps are. So, yes, uh, you, you, you work for Exxon on Monday to, to kind of push the interests of Exxon to keep drilling for <clears throat> oil and gas. And then on Tuesday, you're working for um, uh, the city of Baltimore that's suing Exxon for so let- uh, damages. Let's talk about Baltimore.
0: Um, in the state of Maryland, F-reveals, as you said, many nonprofit groups, municipal county governments are sharing lobbyists with the fossil fuel industry, including Baltimore and Johns Hopkins University, one of the leading institutions in the research of climate change. The database reveals, quote, the trustees of Johns Hopkins voted to divest from coal in December 2017, stating a public and explicit stance will help propel the weight of public opinion toward accelerating the transition away from coal— as a source of electric power around the globe. Despite this stance, lobbyist listings for 2022-23 show Johns Hopkins sharing one or more Maryland lobbyists with two companies with substantial coal interests, NRG Energy and Wholesome Participation, if that's how it's pronounced, in addition to five companies with upstream and midstream oil and gas operations. And in Florida, the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital shared a lobbyist with coal plant operator Teco Energy. Um, if you can go more into that. And also, a point you make in the piece is that they are then sharing the strategy say, of an environmental group or university that's just divested with the oil companies because they represent one on Monday and the other on Tuesday.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the great danger. I mean, one of the, one of the justifications of this is that, well, you know, you want the best lobbyists if you're a uh, particular institution, e- including even a, an environmental group. And there are several environmental groups that share lobbyists with big oil. Uh, a bit like a lawyer, you could be a lawyer that represents, um, you know, Donald Trump on one day and Planned Parenthood on another day. And you have this kind of professionalism that m- means that you'd have a divide on that. But um, the practical nature of that, of, of this, is, of course, is that there's... This sensitive information, you don't really want to sh- be shared with the other side, particularly if you're actively campaigning against the other side or suing them in court, as several cities are. So there is that that danger of a conf- conflict of interest there. Um, and, and as you mentioned with uh, Johns Hopkins, there, there is this um, slightly opaque nature of divestment from many universities where they said that they will rid their endowments of um, fossil fuels and yet... They students have been pushing for kind of greater details and clarity about what that means in terms of distance themselves from fossil fuel industry at large. And uh, I spoke to several kind of student groups who have said they're very disheartened that their universities are continuing to work with those links to the fossil fuel industry, even though they say they've divested. It, it's clear that big oil isn't toxic. It isn't radioactive in terms of its uh, reputation as the as perhaps the tobacco industry may be. And all these progressive institutions are very happy to work with um, those aligned with big oil um, if they feel that they can get something out of that.
0: And can you talk about big tech, Oliver?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, it may not surprise some people who are a little cynical about big tech's um, uh, pronouncements on things like climate change, but it's still quite extraordinary that you have these large companies that have uh, vowed to do so much to uh, address the climate crisis. Apple, for example, has um, uh, vowed to kind of um, uh, decarbonize its entire supply chain by 2030. And yet it shares lobbyists with the Coke network. Um, Amazon uh, employs fossil fuel aligned lobbyists in 27 different states. Um, Microsoft lobbyists also works for Exxon on other days of the week. Um, Google has uh, a lobbyist with seven different Uh, fossil fuel clients. I mean, the list goes on and on. This is an industry that has been called out several times for um, under delivering on its promises on on the climate crisis. And it's clear that the the wielding of political power and influence is far more important to them than staying um, true to any kind of ideals of distancing themselves fully from the fossil fuel industry.
0: Uh, I want to quickly get to insurance uh, industry. You tweeted, some of these overlaps are particularly jarring. Uh, State Farm, which is halting new policies in California due to wildfires, has fossil fuel aligned lobbyists in 18 states. Top ski resorts and their melting snow... Also pay for oil and gas lobbyists. Um, knowing this information, can you talk about the significance of State Farm halting new housing insurance policies in California and employing lobbyists who also work for carbon polluters?
1: Yeah, I mean, some of this doesn't seem just to be a kind of conflict of interest. It seems to be going actively against the interests of the the companies that are paying these lobbyists. I mean, State Farm, like you say, they uh, announced in May that they'll be taking no more homeowner policies in in California due to what they call the kind of growing catastrophic risk of wildfires. And yet they employ these fossil fuel lobbyists all across the U.S. It seems to be actively working against their own financial interests. They're paying people to um, create pollute, uh, helping other companies create the pollution that they then have to pay for when it comes to insurance premiums due to wildfires and floods and other huge uh, climate disasters. Uh, and, And ski resorts, too, really seemed quite Surprising to me, I was, I was very kind of interested to see that you had these top uh, ski resorts like Vale and Jackson Hole um, that had lobbyists that also work for fossil fuel interests, given the existential risk that um, uh, global heating causes to uh, the ski industry due to melting snow and, and and glacier loss and so on so um yeah it's really quite surprising to see these kind of overlaps and um until now we didn't know about it there wasn't this transparency until now 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 it's been revealed and maybe uh maybe some action might be taken.
0: Finally, Oliver Millman, what are the universities from Bard to Johns Hopkins um, to University of Washington, etc., and the environmental groups saying about these shared fossil fuel lobbyists?
1: Uh, there's two kind of main defenses. One is, you know, it's quite normal for lobbyists to have lots of different uh, clients. This is just the way the business is done, which is the kind of Um, Maybe kind of a a kind of cynical and grubby way of looking at politics, but probably a realistic one. Um, The other one is that it's it's actually beneficial. Some of the um, green groups told me, well, if you have a fossil fuel lobbyist, um, they will help connect you to politicians you wouldn't normally talk to. They, you know, um, a Republican politician might not take your call if you're the environmental defence fund. But um, if you have a fossil fuel lobbyist, Uh, who they do speak to, you can gain access through them. It's a way of gaining access to those in power, which, again, you might see as a kind of uh, a cynical way of looking at things, but um, is is the way things are done in in state capitals and, uh, of course, in Washington, D.C., too.
0: Oliver Millman, environmental reporter at The Guardian, whose new investigation is headlined Double Agents, Fossil Fuel Lobbyists Work for U.S. Groups Trying to Fight Climate Crisis. We'll link to the piece at democracynow.org. Next up, we go to Guatemala City, where election officials have rejected an attempt by the ruling business and political elite to overturn results from the first round of a presidential election, where the progressive anti-corruption candidate, came in second and a shock to almost all the race leading to an August 20th runoff. Stay with us. My mother and mother. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we turn to major developments in Guatemala, where election officials have rejected an attempt by the ruling business and political elite of Guatemala to overturn the results of last month's first round of the presidential election. The race is heading to a runoff August 20th between the former First Lady, Sandra Torres, and the progressive anti corruption candidate, Bernardo Arevalo, who's also a member of Guatemala's Congress. The review of ballots came after the party of Sandra Torres, who's been accused of corruption um, and her allies, challenged the results of June's first round of elections. A spokesperson for Guatemala's electoral court said in an interview with Reuters Thursday the final results of the first round election have not changed after the review and will officially be released next week. But the elite sector still refused to accept the results. As fear mounts, they'll continue to interfere in the election leading up to the runoff. Protests erupted in Guatemala City earlier this week after the Constitutional Court suspended the certification of the results, which put Bernardo Arevalo of the Samia Party—which Semia means seed— in second place, sending him to that presidential runoff against Sandra Torres, the frontrunner, rights groups denounce the court's decision as anti-democratic. This is an attorney for the Samia party.
4: What is clear is that the slogan of the official party, supported by parties close to the ruling party, is to manage to open as many boxes as possible that will allow them to declare the electoral process null and void so that the election can be repeated.
0: Bernardo Arevalo is the son of the former Guatemalan president, Juan Jose Arevalo, Guatemala's first democratically elected president. He pushed for revolutionary social reforms when he was in office from 45 to 51. Bernardo Arevalo spoke to supporters in Guatemala City after the first round of the election led to his surprise second-place finish. We will fight corruption
2: because if we do not fight corruption, we will not achieve development and fight poverty.
0: Nosotros nos The
2: persecution of the press is a symptom of the deterioration that this country is suffering under this authoritarian regime. La
0: prensa a cualquier persona.
2: We will fight persecution of the press and harassment of anyone of their ideas or dissent. We will guarantee freedom of expression, freedom of the press, and freedom of protest.
0: For more, we go to Guatemala City, where we're joined by Samuel Pérez Álvarez, Guatemalan Congress member, who is Secretary General of the Progressive Guatemalan Political Party, Samia. He was elected to Guatemala's Congress in 2020. Welcome to Democracy Now! So there's all sorts of... um, uh, internecine squabbles within the ruling political and business elite right now. Um, first, were you shocked by your own candidate coming in second? And can you talk about what this means for Guatemala? And if you expect, um, though it is expected that the elite will uh, seek further recounts, annulment, um, uh, that this runoff will happen on August 20th?
4: Yes, of course, we were surprised uh, by the results, but it was uh, logical that this all this elite and this um, like corruption regime uh, were going to give fight against us because uh, this um, review of the ballots it was just an excuse uh, that because they were saying that we manipulated the results in order to commit fraud, but it was impossible for us to do that because we have. No economic resources, we didn't have candidates all over the country, and we are relatively a new political party. So it was really difficult for us to compete uh, in this election, and now they they are saying that we manipulated the results. So it was game-changing for Guatemalan uh, political perspective. Uh, it, It is the first time that this happens.
0: So can you talk about what Samia represents and what it would mean if Bernardo Arevalo became president of Guatemala, what he ran on his platform?
4: Well, we are a social democratic party, uh, but we have some priorities uh, that maybe that scares some political elites or economic elites. We have some priorities that will take us uh, well, some time to solve here in Guatemala because uh, we have, like, uh, this democracy, it isn't in at its best. So first, the first thing is that we're going to fight against corruption, and that means, like, a big administrative reform of the state. The second thing is having a market that works for all. So we plan to pass uh, the first antitrust legislation in the history of Guatemala. And that is breaking all these market concentration, monopolies and everything and market imperfections. So that is maybe the uh, most scary things for economic elites here in Guatemala. And the third thing is a massive investment in health, in education, social security and public services.
0: Can you talk about the history of U.S. intervention and how that has led to where we are today? We were just mentioning that Bernardo Arevalo's father, Juan José Arevalo, first democratically elected president of Guatemala, went from 45 to 51. In 54, 1954, um, the U.S. Uh, backing United Fruit overthrew the Guatemalan president, Arbenz, leading to a number of military regimes, the massacres of people, particularly indigenous in the Northwest Highlands of Guatemala, and how that has brought us to today, to Giamaté, the current president, who we just heard Bernardo Arevalo talking about the authoritarian government, um, and what you think needs to change, and particularly what should the U.S. be doing, what role the U.S. should be playing?
4: Well, yes, it it is— Important for us because uh, Juan José Arevalo uh, was the first democratically elected president here in Guatemala. He won against a regime of military dictatorships, and now Bernardo will win against a regime of corruption dictatorship. I, I think that we have historical justice and Guatemalan people on our side. And we know that we have a social democratic legacy, but we are now looking forward. And we're expecting to have a pacific but but strong government against corruption and authoritarian ways. Uh, But we know that we have now a polarized society. And it is time uh, to put an end to that.
0: And can you talk about Gia when it comes to corruption? I mean, when you have what is known as the pactos corruptos, the political and business ruling elite in Guatemala, how they banned presidential candidates, um, uh, it seems like they didn't bother to ban uh, Bernardo Arevalo because they never realized he would come in second, leading to this runoff against the former First Lady Sandra Torres.
4: Well, actually, well I'm not I'm not sure if if uh if Yamate's presidency is the most corrupt president in history, but it sure is the most shameless. They have no legitimacy, no social nor economic results for the people, not even the intention to solve them some minor pro- problems. So it's all about two two things for them. Stealing everything they could and seeking for impunity by selecting and protecting their judges. Um, semia or arises actually from a wave of protest against corruption and all the authoritarian ways. We have been speaking up in Congress against this political uh, prosecution, and which have, we have been victims in the past also, and in favor of freedom of speech and me, many other human rights. So it's very important for us this election.
0: Can I ask you about the attacks on, um, activists, on opposition, uh, also on the press, um, uh, the El, pa- uh, El Periodico, uh, and the, Founder José Rubén Zamora, just sentenced to six years in prison. Um, And what this means, the Guatemalan court in June convicting him of money laundering um, in what rights groups have condemned as a trumped-up case, part of a crackdown on press freedom, Um, Zamora, founder and president of this investigative journalism website.
4: Yes, it is, um, because this uh, regime is not only corrupt, but authoritarian. So it's not the first symptom of this uh, authoritarian g- regime uh, getting to power because we have uh, no freedom sp- of speech. Uh, we They, like, by all these congressmen and congresswomen in Congress. So uh, there is no, like, Republican balances, uh, check and balances here in Guatemala. So it is not only a political saying that we are living uh, in a corruption dictatorship. So we have to put an end to that because we have a really polarized society and it is because of political decisions.
0: Mm. And... Can you talk about how corruption and this authoritarianism leads to greater migration um, and the role of the U.S. when it comes to shoring up the Guatemalan government in exchange for stopping that migration—
4: well, actually, some of uh, the consequences of this uh, corruption elite leading the country is that they do not have any plan for anything uh, but for stealing uh, public uh, money. So uh, the economic strategy is not working for anyone here in Guatemala. So the consequences are uh, migration, but also and the the increases of violence, of uh, inequality, of poverty. So every time we measure poverty, it's uh, every time higher. Uh, And that is also political decisions, so uh, that is why they have no legitimacy in power. So they might have the constitutional court, uh, the uh, electoral authority, the Congress, uh, the executive power, but they do not have the most important majority, which is the people's majority.
0: And there have been protests around the political and government elite uh, trying to head off this runoff, uh, stop um, Arevalo from running. Are you concerned about them initiating street violence?
4: The street violence?
0: Violence in the streets.
4: Yes. Well, maybe, because I'm not sure if they are going to—, to um win this one because people are, are not supporting. Uh, actually I think the review of of these um ballots, it was their second plan. Their secondary plan. Um, if it, it have came out for them, everything will be different now. But it was a big failure for them. It was I, I would say humiliating for them because in the public eye, with all the media watching and our brave teams fighting uh, for a fair review, we we ended up having more votes that we were like originally announced, and it wasn't a lot, but a couple of thousand of votes that they typed it wrong. So we are now stronger stronger than ever. So I'm not sure if. They're going to uh, be like stopping uh, Bernardo from running for the second round.
0: Samuel Perez Alvarez, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Guatemalan Congress member, head of the progressive political party, Samiya. Of course, we'll continue to follow what happens this summer. Next up, it's the 10th anniversary of the coup in Egypt that ousted its first democratically elected president. We'll speak with Shadi Hamid about lessons for the next Arab Spring. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman as we end today's show looking at this 10th anniversary of the 2013 coup in Egypt, when General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi removed Egypt's first democratically elected president from power, then led a purge of Muslim Brotherhood, government leaders and a crackdown on dissent. Lessons for the next Arab Spring is the headline of a new piece by Shadi Hamid, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, author of The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the rise and fall of an ideal. Uh, Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. If you can start off by laying out what we now know about the role of the U.S., particularly of President Obama, in response to the coup.
3: Yep. Uh, Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. So, um, Washington was directly complicit And I think up until relatively recently, and certainly right after the coup 10 10 years ago, there was a sense that the US was caught off guard, that the Obama administration wanted to do the right thing, but didn't know how, and they didn't really have leverage. And that sort of kind of innocent bystander theory where America acts like, you know, oh, what could we do? We're only the superpower of the world. You know, in recent years, more and more information has come out that suggests that the U.S. played a quite negative role in the months and days leading up to the July third, twenty thirteen, military coup. And you know, in my piece um, and in the book from which it's adapted, the problem of democracy, I interviewed around thirty uh, former and and current senior U.S. officials, and was able to get some some spicy information on certain key moments in those final days and it's not a positive picture Um, and i I do argue explicitly that washington and obama in particular gave what amounted to a green light to the egyptian military to proceed with the coup Um, we could have done quite a bit more to stop it we could have threatened an immediate aid suspension before the coup happened and even after the coup happened, there was a chance to declare it a coup and cut assistance, and that's what U.S. law requires in any coup d'état where the military plays a decisive role. Um, it is a legal obligation to cut aid. Of course, uh, President Obama got away from that or avoided that by not declaring it a coup. So there are a number of these different things that you know when you when you sort of piece them together. Um, it's we can't really say that the U.S. didn't know what was going on. And in fact, some senior officials, in particular, John Kerry, was actually quite enthusiastic about the coup. And um, there was this very memorable phrase where he said that Abdul Fattah Sisi was, quote unquote, restoring democracy. He said this after two massacres of Muslim Brotherhood supporters.
0: I, I mean, the, your piece is really interesting and I just want to read from it because it really tells people, um, how, you know, the government works. Uh, you write, a White House advisor who was there walked me through how the conversation unfolded. He said, I came in all hot and bothered, and so did a few others, that there was a clear letter of the law that said, declare the coup, cut off military assistance. Actually, we weren't even focused on the first thing, because only somebody who was purposefully obfuscating what uh, would say that it wasn't a coup. So it was like, when do we announce this? That's when I came in, expecting the conversation was going to be about that. And then uh, Obama, for the only time that I can recall in the years I worked for him, the only time he came in and said, well, so we're not going to declare this a coup, so what should we do? I was totally taken aback by that, and so were many other people, and so it completely changed the tenor. Of the conversation. I mean, this is fascinating. I don't know if you want to reveal now who it was who was talking to you, (laughs) but explain what this means and why you think Obama took this stance and what now this has meant. I mean, we're talking about thousands of people imprisoned, uh, political prisoners.
3: Yeah. And it's really worth underscoring what kind of how this is such a moral stain on the Obama administration's legacy. I do consider the coup to be the day that the Arab Spring ended. After that, there was no hope of getting back. I mean, Egypt is the most populous country in the region. Egypt sets the tone. So this was not just a minor thing. This was decisive, and I hope it will be remembered in that way. And that quote, just hearing you read it back to me, I'm, I still find it remarkable. I mean, I can't share who it was because that's not the sort of thing um, this person would want to be known for. Um, but, uh, but it is really it is really remarkable. And as for the reasons behind it, I think there's a couple things going on here. Obama also had this very pragmatic side to him where he would say, well, you know, if a coup already happened, let me try to do business with the people who are in power. Let me try to get things done. I don't want too much headache of some big pro-democracy agenda. Let's also keep in mind that Obama... When he assumed the presidency, he wanted to distance himself from the Bush administration's so-called freedom agenda. So there was always a kind of discomfort with a very strong emphasis on democracy promotion. But I think there's actually a darker undercurrent where Obama, after some initial enthusiasm for the Arab Spring when it started in 2011, he gets very disillusioned very quickly. And one of the things I discuss at length in the book is the sorts of things that Obama would say privately and even sometimes publicly about Arabs and Muslims. And there was that famous Atlantic profile from 2016 that reported that Obama was known to privately joke, quote unquote, all I need in the Middle East is a few smart autocrats. He also had like, he also had another joke where he would say he would wonder out loud why people in the Middle East can't be just like the Scandinavians. So there was this sense of, like, why can't the Muslims get their act together? Why are they always fighting? And Obama almost felt betrayed because he he supported the Arab Spring, or at least he thought he did in the beginning. And then he then he kind of went and said, well, was I right to support it if it led to all this civil conflict? Um, And all these clashes between different parties and and ideological orientations. And of course, let's remember, too, that Obama wanted to pivot away from the Middle East. So there was a sense that he was always being dragged back in. And I think at some point there was just a sense of, well, maybe if they were all autocrats, things would be a lot easier. And then just the last thing is. We have a we have a democratic dilemma in the Middle East. We like democracy in theory, but we don't like democracy's outcomes in practice. Why? Because it's Islamist parties that tend to win elections or at least do quite well in them when elections are held in the Middle East. And the coup was committed against a Muslim Brotherhood led government. Here's an Islamist party that believes that Sharia or Islamic law should play a central role in public life. And then we as Americans are just instinct instinctually uncomfortable with that. We think democracy should lead to good outcomes. But when it leads to Islamist outcomes, we struggle with that.
0: Well, Shadi Hamid, I want to thank you for being with us, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. We'll link to your new piece in foreign policy, Lessons for the Next Arab Spring. Uh, the book uh, that he's authored, The Problem of Democracy, America, the Middle East, and the Rise and Fall of an Idea. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Augusta, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Shea, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Waranoff, Sharina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Teh Maria. Studio: John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Honey Massoud, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman. This is democracynow.org.